30 years ago this week, the Space Shuttle Challenger launched with the first teacher in space on board. 73 seconds into flight, it exploded. I was a child and I remember watching the custodian of our school lowering the flag to half-staff that cold January morning. In the three decades that have passed since the accident, most of us have seen the video again and again of the accident on January 28, 1986. But I wonder if you know what happened the night of January 27th, the evening before. On a special show today, I welcome the one person who officially refused to sign off on the launch of Challenger and his lessons for all of us on leadership and ethics. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 229. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to develop your leadership skills. And I am really glad that you tuned in for today's show. Because when I first met this week's guest in person a year ago... I was immediately captivated by his story, and I knew it was one that I wanted the Coaching for Leaders community to hear. And what many of you know is that NASA launched the Space Shuttle Challenger on January 28, 1986, 30 years ago, and of course the resulting accident that happened just moments after the spacecraft launched. What you may not know was that there were warnings against doing so from many individuals, including my guest today, Al McDonald. Al, as he sought to draw attention to the real reasons behind the disaster, was singled out for retribution by his employer. And he not only accurately diagnosed the problem with the troubled booster's joints, but also a failure in management that led to the demise of Challenger. As a result of his efforts, he ended up being instrumental in implementing the sweeping changes that markedly improved the safety of future space shuttle missions. He published a book in 2009 titled Truth, Lies, and O-Rings, Inside the Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster with Dr. James R. Hansen. And Al, when you and I were talking before we had this conversation today, I mentioned that I was in elementary school at the time this accident happened, and outside of a couple of extended family members who passed away when I was a child. This is the moment that I remember that really sent put a sense of, of a shock, but also grief into something that happened as a child. And it's one of the first times I rem- really remember experiencing grief. And it, it was really an accident that that captivated the world's attention. And I'm really grateful for your time and in, in joining us today and sharing your story. Maybe you could set the stage for us, not only for where the space program was in early 1986, but also your role with Morton Thiokol, Al, and and how you were involved specifically with the shuttle program. Okay, well, I actually had come into the shuttle program just a couple years before the accident, 1984, under some rather unusual circumstances because we had a big accident at the plant, Morton Thiokol, that I worked at. Well, we burned up part of the uh, shuttle pro- shuttle uh, facilities, 
And we're very fortunate we didn't lose uh, a bunch of people because of that accident. And uh, as a result of the accident investigation, I was called in and told that I was now going to be the new director of the Space Shuttle Solid Rocket Motor Project. Certainly had more on my plate than I had ever anticipated. It also was uh, unique to me because I had spent my prior 25 years up to that time in various facets of engineering, from design to running laboratory, uh, project engineers. And so this was my first assignment as a program manager. And I quickly realized after I started doing that job for a very short period of time that a program manager's plate in his hat is much larger than an engineer's. He not only has to worry about all the engineering problems and issues that are being worked, but he has to worry about schedules and costs and budgets and customer relations. And all of those things are on a program manager's plate. And uh, we were going along uh, fairly well, except we were looking forward to NASA's uh, new schedule, which they were at that time proposing that they were going to start flying space shuttles at a rate of two per month, 24 per year, by the end of probably 1988. So when we got into 1986, it more than doubled the flight rate from the previous year. And they were going to double it again almost. So it was a tremendous lot of pressure on the agency to, to perform with all of the components and all those shuttle systems to get them up into even a production rate to meet that, much less turn around the, the shuttle as much as fast as they could. And that became uh, part of the problem with the launch of the space shuttle, Challenger, on that cold morning of January 28th, because the prior launch, which actually had uh, Congressman Bill Nelson from Florida, who was now a senator, I believe, uh, was on that launch, and it had suffered the most delays of any space shuttle launch prior to that time. In fact, it was like six or seven delays. It was actually supposed to fly about a week before Christmas. And the media was just absolutely merciless on NASA. They'd publish things like, you know, NASA's showing their out budget here in a couple of years. They're going to fly two of these shuttles a month. And they couldn't even get one of them off the launch pad after it was declared to go within a month. And so that brought a lot of pressure, obviously, to all the folks down at the Cape, because now we had another shuttle launch scheduled, the Challenger, for January, which meant that we could get two launches off in January. And uh, that added some added schedule pressure to make sure we got this one off. But it wasn't clean either. It actually suffered two delays prior to the planned launch of the 28th of January. And the prior delay just before that was due to some very strong ground winds that prevented the, the vehicle from being launched because it exceeded the constraints for the uh, return to launch site. And so it got postponed to the next day. And I remember leaving the launch control center and going to my friend in Titusville I wasn't there for about an hour, and I got a phone call from one of the fellows that worked for me and said, you know, Al, we were just informed that there's a meteorologist in Orlando just announced that these strong ground winds that we experienced today, right behind it, it's a real cold front moving to the Cape, and it could be as 
cold as 18 degrees Fahrenheit by tomorrow morning at the opening of the launch window. And I says, good grief, I'm really worried that our O-ring seals and our fuel joints will operate properly at those kind of temperatures. He said, yes, our engineers are too, and the reason I called you is that they want you to find out from NASA what the actual forecast hour by hour is at the launch site, not in Orlando, so that we can predict the actual temperatures on our hardware at the opening of the launch window tomorrow morning. This was on January 27th, so the, the day before the accident. So, the so you're, before, in a, you're in this relatively new job as a program manager. There's unbelievable pressure from all kinds of different stakeholders for the shuttle program to stay on schedule. And and that's when you learn about this, the the, the weather factor that was going on that day. And, and why is why was the cold temperature such a factor and such a concern for you when you found out about that? Well, it was uh, a real concern because uh, I quickly remembered that one year ago, in January of 1985, just one year before that, we pulled a couple of the, these two boosters out of the ocean after a flight. And when we pulled them apart, we noticed that a joint in each booster, both of them had evidence of black soot trapped between the two O-rings. There's two O-rings in these joints because it's such a critical function, it has to have redundancy. So there's two O-rings. What that indicated was that some hot gas got past the first O-ring and stopped by the second one. And it was a fairly large quantity of black soot, fairly penetrating in the joint. In fact, it went most of the way around this big joint, which is 12 feet in diameter. And we couldn't understand why we saw this in these two joints. We went back through all of the uh, records of the buildup and the fabrication, thinking maybe we had some tolerance problems or something. And the only thing we found that was different from any other flight that we had flown, was that that was the coldest launch that we had ever seen up to that time. Mm. And we had calculated that the joint at that time it was launched was at 53 degrees Fahrenheit. And I remember making the flight readiness review for the next launch, convincing NASA why it was still safe to launch. I had actually clipped out a uh, article in the Orlando Sentinel which said that that launch that we saw this observation was preceded by the three coldest days in all of Florida history in over 100 years of records. It actually got down into the teens for three consecutive nights before the launch. And I said, we obviously aren't going to see this again, certainly not in April, which was at that time the next scheduled launch. And so everybody felt comfortable that that was a unique condition but it certainly was scary because we knew that came too close to not only losing all the safety factor in that joint, but actually could be catastrophic if the second O-ring ever got passed. The temperature factor was strongly suspected to be a, a huge factor in whether or not the joints failed. And so this this brings us back to the night before the accident, then January 27th, and you hearing that weather report and take us take us there and tell us what happened after you went and found more of the information about the weather and what conversations happened with NASA that evening. Well, once I uh, realized that we needed to get this information uh, to our engineers on the predicted temperatures, I obtained that and sent it to them and told them 
but they need to take that information along with whatever information they have and put together a presentation for uh, that evening that I would arrange on a teleconference tying our engineers in with the engineers at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, and also management of NASA at the Kennedy Space Center, where I was at. I said, now, I want you to, to uh, analyze it the best you can, but at the end, I want the actual vice president of engineering to make a recommendation what is the coldest temperature that it is safe to launch. And that ought to be the bottom line. I did arrange that meeting. We were on the teleconference. In fact, almost all the charts were handwritten. The engineers didn't even have time to type them. And the engineers that prepared them uh, were the ones that uh, gave it over the teleconference. They had faxed these charts to every location so people could look at them. And uh, at the end of the presentation, the vice president of engineering came on, a fellow by the name of Mr. Bob Lund, and he said, based on the presentation that we've given here uh, this evening by my engineering staff, I would not recommend that we launch the space shuttle below 53 degrees Fahrenheit, which was clearly the threshold that we had seen a year earlier that scared us somewhat. And I was absolutely shocked at NASA's response to that. They challenged the basis for such a strict recommendation. They said, gee, that's really uh, only based on some qualitative observation. Uh, you haven't presented any hard test data that says it won't operate properly or some hard analysis. I was absolutely amazed that they challenged that recommendation. In fact, the head of the Solid Rocket Booster Project at Marshall, a fellow named Larry Malloy, then said, my God, April, what will my God say? I call, when do you want me to launch? Next April? And, which was a very intimidating statement. And, and then he said, you know, the eve of a launch is a hell of a time to be creating new launch commit criteria. And so he asked uh, his fellow at uh, Huntsville, the Deputy Director of Science and Engineering, fellow member George Hardy, what his position was. And he basically said that uh, he was appalled that Thackall could make such a recommendation based on information we presented that evening, but that he would not go against the contractor's uh, recommendation. And then the head of the Shuttles Project Office, who was also at the gate with me, a fellow by the name of Stanley Reinhardt, and he was responsible for all of the elements from Marshall, the external tank, the sawed rocket boosters, and the space shuttle main engines. Uh, he said, well, he thinks that that recommendation certainly is not consistent with what he understood the sawed rocket boosters are supposed to be qualified for which he understood it was supposed to be from 40 degrees Fahrenheit to 90 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, which, by the way, I agreed with. I mean, just so people don't miss the number, you, you all were recommending a benchmark of 53. How cold did it actually get on the launch pad that night? Well, that night it got down to the low 20s, about 20, 21 degrees. And, and I thought, it was, you know, his comment was correct, but it's kind of a moot point because they're asking us based on the predicted temperatures at the launch site, it was going to be at the opening of launch window someplace between 22 and 26 degrees Fahrenheit. So it doesn't matter if it's 40 is the uh, upper, that wasn't apply either. So Yeah, it's, uh, not a, it's not a degree or two. We're talking about a huge difference. No, it's not difference. a degree or two. We're not yeah. there close where you could move it a few degrees one way or the other. We're still a long ways away. 
what happened with this conversation? So, so you you both in Thiokol, your your company, the contractor in charge of the solid rocket boosters, was in in one place with one recommendation, and the shuttle management was in another place. What what happened? What evolved from that discussion was what I didn't want to happen, and that is that finally the the NASA management asked my boss, who was the vice president of space booster programs, the old name of Joe Kilminster what his position was. As I indicated earlier, I wanted this to be a, an engineering recommendation based on its technical merits only. And he basically said, well, you know, he can't go against the engineering recommendation, but he said, uh, we'll go back and revisit our analysis and what information we presented, make sure that we have included everything that we have available, because there was some implication that maybe we only presented reasons and data that says why it might be of concern, but didn't present any data we may have that said it might not be a concern. And he said, we'll go back and revisit that, and we'll take about five minutes uh, offline, on mute, to make sure that we've presented everything we have. And he did that. And that five minutes turned into about 30 minutes. And uh, I was thoroughly convinced myself of what they're doing is that they're trying to run some analysis to see if they could go lower than 53. So they would have some analytical basis along with the uh, qualitative observation that you got criticized for to support some number. But uh, my guess was they were going to try to support maybe going down as far as 40, which in from a real launch uh, for tomorrow probably wouldn't impact it, but it certainly could impact whether they delay one day or two days or something. Yeah, so you're at the Kennedy Space Center, and they're all having this conversation back in Utah, if I'm recalling correctly, and and you're just waiting to see what happens when they come back on the line and what the recommendation is that comes back with. Once the conversation did resume and your people in Utah came back on the line, what happened? Well, the first thing that happened, which, which kind of took me aback, was that it wasn't the vice president of engineering coming back on the line who had made the recommendation in the first place. It was my boss, the vice president of Space Booster Programs and Program Management, Joe Kilminster. And he basically came back and said they had revisited everything and had concluded that it was okay to proceed on with the launch as planned. No specific temperature at all. And that really took me aback a little bit because I didn't quite understand that because he didn't present any real information that was much different than what we had discussed before we went offline to support that. And it was clear that NASA got the answer they wanted, and George Hardy immediately came in and said, well, you know, you need to put that in writing, which was also very unusual, had never been done before in a shuttle program, and sign, have it signed by a responsible call official. And that's when, uh, as I said in my book, I made the smartest decision I ever made in my lifetime. I knew who that official was. That was me. That was going to be you. I refused to sign it. Yeah. And because I refused to sign it, my boss back in Utah, Joe Kilminster, had to sign it and fax it down to me. I mean, at this point, it's the middle of the night. I mean, the launch is literally hours away. They essentially come to you in the middle of the night with this document and say, sign this document. You you refuse. What was going through your head at the moment that you said, I'm not signing it? Well, I concluded that we were taking risks that we shouldn't have to take. 
and that we could avoid that risk by just delaying a day or two at most, probably just one. We didn't have to pull a shell apart or anything. And that would take care of, of that risk because I knew that the engineers, as well as myself, did not know when this would get to such a temperature that it would not operate properly at all. But we were heading towards that cliff someplace. We didn't know where it was. We didn't know whether it was 10 degrees away or 50 degrees away. But we knew that it was going in the wrong direction and it wasn't worth taking that risk. So I was so upset by that decision. And it took uh, a long time for the signed facts to come down that I I argued with the NASA officials that, first of all, they couldn't even accept a recommendation because they know as well as I do that that recommendation is outside what those motors are qualified to fly in, and they can't even accept that. It's against protocol. So ultimately, your boss signed it. The, The shuttle launched on schedule the next morning, and we all know what happened. And unfortunately, the catastrophe that you and many others thought could be the cliff, as you mentioned, was exactly what happened to Challenger. What happened to you afterwards as the investigation unfolded? What happened? I had went immediately to the Marshall Space Flight Center the day after the launch to be part of the failure team. I had went through what data they had at that time and frankly convinced myself that the only thing that did not fail or caused the failure were the solid rocket boosters because they were the only thing that kept flying after the accident occurred when it exploded. Oh, so you thought it was something else initially. So I thought it was either the space shuttle main engine uh, uh, turbine blades that run at 40,000 RPM. Uh, One of them finally came loose because they had observed cracks in some of them, and uh, that would have caused that kind of explosion, or the tank itself structure had some problem because that's where all the explosion was from the external tank, the liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen getting together. It wasn't until later that day when one of the fellows at the Cape happened to be actually the director of science and engineering from the Marshall Space Flight Center, a fellow named Jim Kingsbury, had called in and said they'd just reviewed the film and saw fire coming out of the side of the solid rocket booster. And I was actually uh, leaving the, what they called the HOSC, the Huntsville Operations Support Center, where they had this failure team at, trying to get an airplane to go home. And I was called back by Mr. Larry Malloy saying I need to get in the conference room and, uh, because they have seen some films down there and claim that there's fire coming outside the solid rocket booster. And I just basically told him, well, you tell Mr. Kingsbury, he doesn't know what the hell he's even talking about, the solid rockets that go flying around with fire coming outside of them. They They explode. They blow up. So I went back in and I said, you sure that this fire's coming out of the solid rocket booster and not the external tank? Oh, yeah, we're absolutely sure it's coming out of the booster. I said, "Uh, it'll be coming of a field joint. And he says, well, I don't know. He says, coming out in the area, you know, where close to where the solid rocket boosters are attached to the external tank. I said, yes, that's exactly in the area of the aft field joint. And right then, my heart about dropped because I realized that that was a joint failure, but I couldn't 
comprehend how it could happen that late in, in the flight, 73 seconds after ignition. I think I saw or saw you saw it in writing that it it just it didn't even cross your mind that it was the O-rings even though you had predicted that there that could be an issue even though you had been the one who most most visibly and officially you know put up the objection to the launch that ultimately you had to be convinced that it was really that that actually brought the shuttle down. Yes, I did because I was convinced that if it really failed due to the O-rings not seating properly, it would happen at ignition, and that the whole thing would probably explode before it cleared the tower. That didn't happen. So I asked them if they looked at any of the film of the liftoff, and I said, go get the camera that's looking right at what you think you see this fire coming out the side. He called me back shortly and said, well, the camera was looking that area, it was froze up, they didn't have any film. I said, well, go find the next one. It's closest. And when he called back then, he said, yeah, we can see a big puff of black smoke. Coming out of that joint, I said, is it around six-tenths of a second? He said, yeah, between six-tenths and seven-tenths of a second. Mm. Then I knew that the actual initial failure was exactly what we were concerned about. It just manifested itself into a final failure that we hadn't projected. It's a and it's a famous photo, and I've seen it many times, and I'm sure many of people in the audience have as well. I mean, there's just so many c- complex and and fascinating things that that revolve around the incidents that led to the the accident. And what really captivates me about your story, Al, is what happened to you afterwards? Because ultimately, you were probably uh, you and a few other people were were ultimately the people who really had were on the side of you know having not necessarily predicted exactly how it would happen, but that this was going to happen and this was a real concern. What happened to you? Well, as far as your work uh, and with Morton Thiokol and, and your job, and you were in charge of the solid rocket booster program for Morton Thiokol. Yes, I was. And I uh, quickly diagnosed exactly what happened, presented to Marshall and went home. I was totally exhausted because I was working almost 20 hours a day for several days trying to find another reason why it failed because I didn't want it to be my solid rocket booster. I was hoping I'd find a reason that it was a secondary failure or something. Something else caused that. And I couldn't. It was another nail in the coffin. When I came home uh, that Sunday from skiing with my children because I'd been working all week, my wife said I had to catch uh, a plane out of Ogden for for the company to go to an emergency meeting of the Presidential Commission. And what had happened was that the New York Times had published a memo from a budget analyst at NASA saying that uh, these folks from Morton Thiokol were here last summer asking for a whole bunch of money to fix this field joint O-ring thing they have. Uh, could that have had anything to do with this accident? Well, immediately the Presidential Commission got inundated by the press about that. They knew nothing about it. NASA had not told them even any idea they had of what caused the shuttle failure, much less that. And so they asked NASA to come in and explain to them whether this memo was credible, this guy had any uh, knowledge about the technical issues he said in this memo that were trying to be fixed. And they immediately called me back because the memo was written about a meeting in the summer of 85 that I'd actually presented to NASA what I thought was the most critical area to fix, and that was the field joint O-ring system. Exactly the system that caused the accident. 
and it ended up getting turned down when we submitted our proposal because it was very costly and it was considered uh, uh, too costly at the time and not uh, cost effective. And that was the memo this guy sent from the budget side. Well, the commission decided to have a meeting with NASA. NASA won the meeting earlier that morning and asked me to bring all the view graphs I had brought to the Washington that summer about that issue back with me and update him to what we know now. I did. Gave them to him. We went over to the old executive office building next to the White House where they had the meeting. And NASA started to present what they knew and took a break and finally uh, came back to resume their presentation. They hadn't asked me to participate. In fact, they made it clear that they would take care of the whole thing. And if they needed any specific help, they would specifically ask for it. When they went in the commission's hearings, they shut the door, and I was out in the hallway with a couple of engineers I invited. We sat up in the uh, gallery, essentially. And Sally Wright finally asked him if it was really true. She returned her some of her phone calls that a reporter asked if it was really true that they'd heard a rumor that one of the contractors was so concerned about the cold weather, they may have even asked NASA to cancel the launch. Is that true? And the response and, and from NASA was that, yeah, there was a lot of people worried about the cold weather and all, and batteries and other things, and even Morton Thiokol wanted to make sure that we understood that we were flying outside of what our experience space was. And so you're in that, the... We tied all our engineers in with our engineers and the management people to review all that, and as a result, Morton Thiokol told us to proceed on with the launch as planned, and we have a signed document to that effect. And so there you are in, this, in, the, in the galleries upstairs listening to all this. You're the guy at the contract who refused to sign the document for launch. What did you do? Well, I, I couldn't restrain myself. I thought, you know, that's, that's true, but it's very deceiving. And so I walked down from the gallery and was waving my hand and finally got acknowledged by, in fact, Mr. Malloy was presenting some of my view graphs saying I, he, I had something to add. He was being asked questions. I said, forget about what's on the wall. I'd like to step back here a couple of minutes ago when Dr. Wright had asked the question about whether one of the contractors was concerned enough about temperatures they may have recommended not to launch. I said, I think this commission should know that Morton Thiokol was so concerned about those temperatures that we recommended not to launch below 53 degrees Fahrenheit, and we put that in writing. Now, I'll never forget Chairman William Rogers of the commission and, and Neil Armstrong vice chairman standing up and kind of looking at me, uh, wondering who this guy was, coming down, and Chairman Rogers said, would you please come down here on the floor and repeat what I think I heard? Because if I heard what I think I heard, this will be in litigation for years to come. And I repeated what he had heard, and my life changed when he said that, because I knew who was going to be in all this litigation for years to come. So I made a conscious decision at that instance that I was going to, as soon as I got out of this meeting, start writing down as much detail as I could about everything that I had been involved in since I came into the shuttle program two years earlier, up through the days before this launch, the day of the launch, and whatever transpired from the commission's hearings. Well, when I got back home to the plant that following Monday, the first thing I found on my desk was a note, the general manager wants me in his office ASAP. So I went in there. And he said, Al, uh, you're no longer head of the shuttle program. 
all people work for you working for the settle fellow, even your secretary, you can keep your office because you're going to be head of scheduling. I said, scheduling? What the hell is a schedule? I don't build anything. And he said, well, you, that's for you to figure out. It was obviously a non-job, hoping yeah. that I would quit. Mm. And I probably would have if it hadn't been for the uh, chief scientist company coming in and after he heard about that and said, Al, you know, he said, this whole company is going to be inundated with responses to this commission and investigation. He said, so I appointed myself as a committee of one to figure out how we're going to fix this problem so it can never happen again. And I'd like to make that a committee of two. Would you join me? I said, absolutely. I think I know how to fix it. Wow. And, uh, and I uh, did that for a few months. And ironically, a few months later, I was back in Washington, D.C. for another reason. I was the chairman of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics Solid Rocket Technical Committee. I was handing my gavel over to the new chairman. And I went to a symposium they had there because... What happened in, in April of 1986, just a few months after Challenger, the Titan 34D blew up about 800 feet off the ground at Vandenberg Air Force Base, and it was the only other vehicle that was capable of launching these huge spy satellites. We were still in this Cold War with the Soviet Union. So we had a big crisis, and they were going to have this fellow talk about it, and I sat in the front row, and the speaker was General Don Katina, who was the commander of the L.A. Air Force Station there, uh, Air Force Systems Command. He gave his speech, and he saw me sit in the front row, and he walked down because he was a member of the Presidential Commission. He said, Al, he says, uh, what are you doing here listening to this rhetoric that we're putting out to the press of how we're going to crawl out from this big mess we made for ourselves? He said, you ought to be spending all of your time figuring out why the shuttle failed the way it did. That's why I'm not doing that. Said, what do you mean you're not doing that? I says, no, I got removed from the failure team. You got removed? He says, when did that happen? I said, I think it was exactly one day after I testified before you people. He said, you're kidding me. We'll fix that problem. And he immediately called Chairman Rogers, who brought all my senior executives back for a meeting a couple days later and wirebrushed them. The following Monday, I went in and had a meeting with our new general manager, and he offered to give me this new position they were creating between NASA and Morton Blackall to make this super task force to return the shuttle to safe flight as soon as possible to bypass a lot of the red tape so it was more like, he said, a skunk works Lockheed and that we would have this senior position in that task force, and they were offering that to me and asked me if I'd take it. I said yes. And uh, I was working long days, long hours, a couple months later, I got a phone call from a congressman, Markey, from Massachusetts, now a senator. He says, Mr. McDonald, is it really true that you're heading this super task force between, your agent, between NASA and your company to restore the shuttle to safe flight? Or is that just some rhetoric your company's putting out to the press to make it appear as if you got a responsible job and they just got you doing some scheduling? Because that had leaked to the press. And I says, no, I, uh, uh, I really am doing that. I'm working... 16 hours a day, six days a week. Do you know something I don't know? He said, well, I'm sure you're aware of House Joint Resolution 634, aren't you? I said, never heard of it. He said, well, that was a resolution I introduced to Congress that was passed, not only by the entire Congress, but also by the entire Senate, on your behalf to reinstate you to your job. Would you like to have a copy of that? I said, I sure would. <laughs> and uh, he sent me a copy. He said, I'll send you a copy also of a letter I sent to your CEO in Chicago. 
And I'll talk to my colleagues in the Senate, namely Eagleton and Gore, who sent a similar letter on your behalf to the NASA administrator. And that basically said that if they didn't reinstate me to a job equivalent to the one I had before I testified before the Presidential Commission, they would not only cancel their existing shuttle contract with the company, but they would ban the company from ever having any kind of a NASA contract in the future. So if I'm reading my uh, history right and the documentation I know of on this, you have the distinction, sir, of being the only person in the history of the United States where Congress passed a law directed at one individual, and that was you, to reinstate your job. That is correct. And I did not know that until I was speaking at Cornell a few years ago. And the professor had researched that because he couldn't hardly believe it. And he finally went down to the Library of Congress when he was in Washington and put in a search for that, and they came back and said, yes, this fellow did get reinstated, and he's the only one ever in American history that got reinstated to his job by an act of Congress. That's awesome. That's awesome. So this actually leads me to a question that, that is one I've wondered about after meeting you, is this accident happened in 1986. You didn't leave your job for Morton Thicol until, it was it 2008, 2009? Uh, was it 2001. 2001. So it was another 15 years after all of this happened, after they had tried to remove you from the position of responsibility, after they basically, you know, I mean, everything imaginable that a company could try to do, they did to you, and yet you you chose to stay there for another 15 years. Well, the first reason I chose to stay is once I accepted that job to fix the problem, I, it totally consumed me, but it also put a very good memory bank next to the bad one of Challenger of fixing that problem, so indeed it would never happen again, and I was ahead of that program for the next three years. I went ahead and was the uh, launch <clears throat> representative for the company for the first three flights after Challenger in 1988 and 89, where we demonstrated that the system was much safer than it ever was. In fact, I always quoted it was the safest part of the shuttle when it retired back in 2011 after 110, 110 perfect flights after that. So it was the best part of the shuttle. I felt very good about that. But I also did not want to stay in that hot seat for that length of time, so I told them I would stay on the first three flights, which were fully instrumented, and then I wanted to find another position, and I did. I got involved in some advanced technology that I certainly enjoyed doing, and then several years later, there was a big scare about solid rockets causing ozone holes that I got involved in, and... uh, at the end of my career, I was head of all the advanced technology uh, out at the plant, everything from airbags to our missiles, strategic, tactical, space motors. And well, and that it actually brings me to one question I've wondered about since hearing your story. And why does it matter that you did what you did, even though it didn't change the outcome? Well, the, the first thing of why it really matters is that I've always told people that that they shouldn't be afraid to ask questions or speak up because I always feel that their professional opinion uh, is not only important, it's their responsibility as, as being a professional. 
And I also told people that, you know, you need to take personal ownership and pride in what you do so that when you walk away at night, you feel like you did the best you could have done. And I'll tell you, that'll make the rest of your life much more pleasant if you really feel that way. And I know that from my own experience, that was the right course to take because now that I have an opportunity to speak to university students who are about to enter into their profession, I tell them that one of the lessons I truly learned was don't always assume everything. Don't always assume if it's really critical. And, and, and by critical, it could really impact people's lives that other people always do their job. And I've always reflected back on absolute shock when I heard the Presidential Commission's testimony from some of the NASA managers and found out that the ones I argued with, the ones who heard all of this controversy, never mentioned a word to the fellows sitting right next to them in the mission management team, which was 100% NASA at that time, saying there was even any concern about cold temperatures. You know, Al, and I'm so grateful for your your leadership in not only that day, but in what you did since then of helping to make this the safest part of the shuttle, like you said, and also just your own uh, your willingness to examine, you know, where you were right, where you were wrong. You know, all of us contribute when something, when an accident like this happens, you know, obviously you dealt with an accident far greater scale than I hope any of us ever will deal with in our careers. And I'm also grateful for the fact that you've, even after retirement, have been writing, have been going around and speaking, um, and and have continued to educate people. Your books required reading and, and, and some engineering programs. And I feel really honored for the lessons of, of leadership that you've continued to bring to people. And I'm, I'm really wondering, for those who really want to get into this more, Obviously, the book's a great place for people to to go and check out more about the story. There's so much detail we're not even covering in the conversation today. Uh, what else is a good way for folks to track you down or if they'd like to have you come speak at their organization? Well, I do have a website at www.ethicskeynotespeaker.com, all in one word, ethicskeynotespeaker.com, that has some background uh, relative to my book. And some of my background also relative to my prior history at, at the company that worked on all these other missile systems. So they can find out information there. Uh, I have my uh, email address at that site as well. They are certainly welcome to send me an email. My phone number's on there. They can call me, and I'd be happy to hear from them. And I'd like to hear uh, their response to, to my book if they have a chance to read it. Well, and I'll certainly share any comments that uh, come in on the show notes, and I'd encourage our audience to to share those as well. And and having been in the audience for now two of the presentations I've seen Al give over the last couple of years, I have never seen a group of people sit more still and more captivated by every word of the story you, you've told Al than they did during watching you speak uh, about this accident. So. Thank you so much for your your leadership, your 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 courage now and also then. And uh, I'm really grateful for you sharing your story with us today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to share my story with your audience. Thanks a lot, Dave.
Al McDonald is the former program manager for the Solid Rocket Boosters when during the Challenger accident and is the author of the book Truth, Lies, and O-Rings Inside the Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster with James R. Hansen. Al, thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. Two thoughts for you after today's conversation. First, it would be a mistake to come away from this episode today, having listened to Al's story, and to believe that all we need to do as leaders is to make the right call in a difficult situation and that people will rush to our defense afterwards to defend the right actions that we've taken and the good decisions that we've made. Well, couple problems with that. First of all, we don't always know we're making the right decision. And secondly, and more importantly, is almost never does that happen. Even in this amazing story we've heard from Al, and as many people that did come to his defense ultimately, including some very powerful people like Neil Armstrong and Sally Ride, it literally took an act of Congress to get his job back something that has never happened in the history of this country. Many people who speak truth to power in organizations, and even if they are in the right, often do not prevail the way Al did in his career. And in fact, it's one of the consistent messages that I've heard Al speak to groups on, and him and I talked about some even after recording this conversation, is he fully expected, especially when he got up and spoke in front of that hearing, he fully expected his career to be over. And so a caution for all of us, yes, do the right thing, and also understand the consequences of those actions. I'm reminded of the quote from Martin Luther King Jr., the time is always right to do the right thing. I've always liked that quote, and I just heard a presentation earlier this month from the pastor at our church talking about that quote. And while he's a huge fan of Martin Luther King and of that quote, his argument was in his sermon that sometimes people oversimplify that message. How you do things and the timing you choose to do them in or not does make a big difference. My second thought is, you heard me ask Al why it mattered. Why does it matter that he refused to sign off on the launch when at the end of the day, it didn't change the outcome. My detailed answer is coming in this week's leadership guide on Wednesday, at least my answer to that question. You already heard Al's, but here's the abridged version of my answer. It matters because it's 30 years later and we're all still learning from this accident. Thanks again to Al for taking the time today to be on the show. I hope that you'll join the conversation as well. Maybe you have thoughts or comments about uh, today's episode. And uh, if you do have a comment and you'd like to share a message with Al, I will be sure to get those to him if you post it up on the show notes. And the best way to do that is just to go to coachingforleaders.com slash 229. If you post something there, I'll make sure that he does receive it afterwards. And as always, your feedback is welcome for the Q&A show that is coming up next week on the first Monday of the month. That'll be episode 230. 
If you have a comment or question that you would like to be considered for that show or a future Q&A show, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And if you're not already subscribed to the show, please do so and you'll get new episodes every Monday. Just search for Coaching for Leaders on whatever podcast app or service you use. And I mentioned that this week's leadership guide is going to be about the answer to that question, why does it matter? And the leadership guide comes to your inbox every Wednesday. Each Wednesday, it includes my thoughts and recommendations on articles, podcasts, videos, books, other links online that'll support your development between the shows. And it also includes a brief overview and link to the full weekly show notes each week. So if you listen on the go like I do, it will help you to have a good follow-up source for getting the resources we talk about in every show. And when you first join the Leadership Guide, you'll get instant access to my Reader's Guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others with brief summaries from me on the value of each one of those books. It's an 11-page Reader's Guide and a 9-minute video of all of those book recommendations. And you can get access to all of that at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe is the way to get onto that. And thank you so much to the person out in France who wrote a really kind review on iTunes and compared my work to the work of a jeweler who is working to shine and make diamonds more brilliant. Thank you. That was really kind of you to write. I so appreciate it. And if you'd like to post a review for the show as well, and you've been listening for a bit, I'm always grateful for those. Just go to coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes. If you use iTunes or if you use Stitcher, coachingforleaders.com slash Stitcher. And thanks as always for your support. It's such a privilege to be able to bring the show to you each week. And I look forward to speaking with you again next Monday, along with Bonnie on the Q&A show. Have a great week. Take care.